Good morning. We are in a series in the Gospel of Luke called Outside In. We're tracking stories in this series that look at the teachings and stories about Jesus that show us how he opened the way for outsiders to come in, uh, to experience community with God and with God's people. And at the same time, he used these experiences to challenge those who assumed that they were already on the inside, people that thought that they have nothing to learn and nothing to change in their lives. The theme that we're exploring together is that God's love is a centering love, that it takes those who are forgotten or marginalized and it makes them central to the conversation of how God's love lives in any particular circumstance. There's perhaps no story that fits this description better than the one that we're about to read in Luke 7. So we're going to read from Luke 7, verses 36, all the way to chapter 8, verse 3. And this is what it says. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Luke 8 verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. The good news that we proclaim today, friends, 
is that Jesus turns the tables of power to show us what tables are really for. Instead of hospitality games and power posturing, Jesus makes a seat for everyone at his table. So lay down your assumptions and come to his table today as you are and receive God's peace. The passage that we just uh, that just preceded the one that we read, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to a crowd and he's explaining how John the Baptist, his cousin, was rejected by the religious insiders and gatekeepers of his day. And these same people, these same leaders also took issue with Jesus. So it says in Luke 7, 34, the son of man, he's referring to himself, came eating and drinking. And you say he here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, John and Jesus both are religious insiders who are using their elevated place to center and include outsiders. And this made the insiders incredibly angry because the way the insider logic works is that the inside is only special because it excludes those who belong uh, outside of it. And Jesus and John, they aren't playing by those rules. And that's when we get the story uh, today. Simon, who's a Pharisee, invites Jesus for dinner at his home. And this is more than just a private meal. This is a powerful, established leader in the community inviting another up-and-coming leader, a rabbi, with an ever-expanding following to converse over their ideas about God, about the nation, and about how society should function. This is a public event with social, political implications for the community. This is the room where it happens for you Hamilton fans. And the woman that we see uh, is not invited, but uninvited guests were often present at these sorts of soirees to listen to the conversation. They were expected to follow the rules, listen, don't speak. And this woman is unnamed, but she is not unknown in her community. In fact, she has a reputation that's followed her into this scene. Many scholars think from the way that she's described and the way that people seem to, to react to her presence and talk about her, that she's some sort of sex worker. But we're told that she hears that Jesus is dining at Simon's house, and so she shows up at this very important place, a place that will bring shame on both the host and the guest if she isn't handled properly. This woman brings an alabaster jar and she begins to weep over Jesus's feet, washing them with her tears and drying them with her hair, anointing them with a very expensive oil. This woman takes an audacious gamble. She does not belong anywhere near this table. Her presence is unthinkable. And it's even worse than what we might realize on the surface, because this isn't just an awkward event. Culturally in the Bible, uh, feet were used as a euphemism for bodily intimacy and even nakedness. Uh, the story of Ruth and Boaz comes to mind when um, Ruth's mother-in-law says to her to go and and essentially spend the night with Boaz to uncover her his feet. And, and and regardless of what we think may or may not have occurred in that event, um, 
this this has to do with a, a particular kind of intimacy that um, would be romantic at the very least. So the fact that a woman of her reputation is wiping and kissing a rabbi's feet, it wouldn't have just been improper. It would have been viewed by Simon's guests as this evocative expression of affection. Her hair isn't uh, covered like it's supposed to be. And, and not only that, but her, her hair is touching Jesus in a way that no rabbi would dare allow themselves to be touched. I mean, no wonder Jesus had a bad reputation with the insiders. No wonder they thought he was a glutton and a drunkard, a, a quote-unquote friend to sinners. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus is uncovering his feet in front of everybody. He's not being promiscuous or sexual or risque in any kind of way. What I am saying is that this is a really big deal. It's not just an awkward social faux pas. This is an already shamed woman, an outsider, risking everything, even the reputation of the one person who could turn her life around in order to be accepted into this community. And so the question on everyone's mind isn't so much, what is she doing there? Or why is she doing this? It's what will Jesus do with this woman? How is the insider going to react to this outsider in her lavish transgression of the insider's rules? Now, Simon is an insider himself. He already knows the answer to this question. In verse 39, he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. In other words, anyone who claims to speak for God would know exactly what to do with this kind of woman. But shockingly, Jesus doesn't scandalize her, scold her, doesn't send her away. He turns not to her, but to the host. And he begins to share this story about two people in debt, one owing a smaller amount of money and the other owing an enormous amount of money. And he says in this story, both are forgiven. This concept of jubilee where debts are wiped away, it comes to both of them. They're forgiven. They're clean. They're, they're, they're sent out to be free. And he asks this question, who will love the lender more? And Simon says it's the one with the greater debt. And that's when Jesus turns towards this woman in verse 44 and says to Simon, Do you see this woman? Do you see her? Do you see this woman whose sins have been forgiven, who's, who, who is experiencing jubilee right now? In other words, what you see here. Uh, is an outpouring of love for the one who forgives debts and welcomes her back into the community. The one who holds not her reputation against her, but gives her a new standing as a beloved one in God's kingdom. Simon, do you see her as she is? Because I see her, Simon. I see her. And then Jesus turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, this sends the crowd into a tizzy, 
Um, and they immediately want to shift the discussion away from the woman and towards Jesus and how he's able to forgive sins. Like, who is this that can do this sort of work that only God can do? But notice, Jesus continually re-centers the woman, not as a social outcast, but now as the guest of honor in this event. He says in verse 50 to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You're the one with faith in this environment. You're the one who belongs. So the good news that we proclaim today is that Jesus turns the tables of power to show us what tables are really for. They're not for hospitality games and power posturing and insider outsiders. Jesus makes a seat for everyone at his table, including you including me, including everyone. And so lay down your assumptions and come to his table just as you are and receive God's peace today. So I want to ask then, what is Jesus doing in this story? Like at a high level. Um, and there are at least three things. There's a mountain more, but there are at least three things I think that we need to hear. And I'm going to kind of go through them from obvious to less obvious. So let's start with the obvious. The first thing I think is that Jesus is redefining who gets a seat at the table. Um, see, we've often, all of us, make assumptions that the table of God's blessing is reserved for the faithful, the moral, the sound of doctrine. But is it? Um, communion is one of the primary ways that we express the, the welcome of God to people. And I, I remember several years ago, I sat down with somebody who was exploring new churches in the area, and they were asking about our church and what makes us unique. And one of the questions that they asked when I told them about how we do communion is, well, then how do you fence the table? That was the term he used. Now, I had been a pastor for uh, at least eight years by that point, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I'd never heard that term before, fence the table. So I immediately turned the question back on him. And I said, how have you seen the table fenced in your experience before? And he described his previous church experience and how there was sort of rigid membership uh, process. And during that process, you had to basically um, uh, sign that you would be open and honest about any and every kind of sin in your life, and that uh, there are pastors who checked up on people regularly to see uh, what their doctrine was and how their lives were. And assuming that everything was okay, uh, they would be welcome to come up for communion. But if you hadn't gone through that process, well, then you had to wait in your seat and, and maybe things would change the next week. And I, I think about that story now, and I something that always didn't sit right with me until I was reading this story of Jesus and this woman at this Pharisee's house. And it dawned on me that the only person who's fencing a table in this story is the Pharisee. Jesus opens fenced tables. He says to people of all walks of life, come as you are. You are welcome at my table. There's nothing restricting you. In fact, if you have the kind of past that this woman has, 
and you have the faith to stand up and walk forward to join hands with other people around my body and my blood given for you, you are the guest of honor. You're the one with the most faith in this room. This is what we see Jesus doing. Now, the second thing that we see in this story, and I'm going to put it two ways, one less scandalous than the other. So here's the less scandalous way. Jesus is humanizing this woman. Now, here's the, le- the more scandalous way. Jesus is desexualizing this woman. He says to, to Simon, do you see her? Um, we do not have a great reputation as the Christian church, and I'm talking as one of them, and particularly men, and especially pastors, um, at seeing women not just as objects of temptation. Um, purity culture and the, and the way that we've talked about uh, sexual desires and urges have kind of forced us into a corner where we can't actually have like real relationships between men and women. And it's, it's common, it's been common, far too common um, for Christians and pastors to reduce people to either their sexual history or their sexual identity. We do this all the time. But friends, Jesus is freeing her from objectification so that she can be received into relationship as a real person and not an object. See, everyone in the room has this woman labeled from the moment she approaches Jesus. The only one who dignifies her humanity is the Son of Man. And church, I think we have a lot to learn from Jesus in this regard. We're told again and again that we uh, are to reduce women to their bodies and the temptation that they posed to men. And we're tempted to assume that God can't be at work um, in someone's life just because of their sexual orientation. We do this all the time. And God is asking us, I think, do you see them? Do you see her? Do you see them as more than just what you've labeled them to be? Have you excluded my ability to work and to act in their life in ways that you couldn't perceive because you're too busy playing the insider-outsider game. So that's the second one. Jesus is desexualizing this woman. And then the last thing is that we, we see that Jesus, what we see Jesus doing here is he's changing the way power worked against outsiders like her. Uh, my friend Matt Tebby puts it this way. He says, Jesus ate meals all wrong. He broke the rules on how meals work. Jesus ate with the outcast, the powerless, and the despised to increase their honor at the expense of his own. And when he ate with the powerful, the insiders, Jesus honored the least powerful to the shame of the host. Every meal Jesus ate was a protest designed to abolish the systemic injustice that was baked into those environments. You see, um, there is a system at work in these dinners 
Two people of power come together to hash out how society will function. This is the room where it happens. These are the influencers of society. And it has a, a way that it's all supposed to work. So notice, Jesus doesn't just come along and say, well, the system's fine. Let's just tweak the guest list a little bit. No, he's calling into, into question the entire logic of the system. This whole using meals as a show of status with all the posturing and pretending, that itself is creating obstacles and barriers for people like this woman who crashed the party. See, it's the, the way the environment is set up in the first place is forgetting what tables are for. See, for Jesus, tables aren't for dividing and posturing. They're for inviting and equalizing. They're not for exclusion, but for community to those who've been left out. So Jesus's table, it has room for the uninvited, for the shamed, for the disgraced and the scandalous, for those that we might consider unholy. Jesus's whole ministry is about announcing that God's kingdom has arrived in this material world for people like this. And so Jesus goes to a dinner party, into the specificity of this meal and all that it's doing to restrict and marginalize people. And he bears witness to a kingdom that runs on an entirely different logic than the one of this world. His kingdom is one that declares forgiveness and it sends out those that have been forgiven as peace bearers so that they can do the same thing for others. Friends, this same Jesus that turned these tables is here with us. He's present and at work today. And he's present so that we, you and I, might be filled with his spirit, that our lives might be a reflection of the fullness of God, that just as Jesus inhabited a new way of relating to outsiders and calling them in and humanizing and dignifying them, even as he called out the structures that hoarded God's blessing and community, that we too would live our lives in him by embodying these same things. So the question then is, do the tables in your life, do our tables reflect this logic and wisdom of Jesus's kingdom? Now, this isn't a question that we're used to asking because I think a lot of Christians are, are used to calling out the problems of other people's tables without ever looking at their own. We're great at removing the plank, the, the, the speck from our brother's eye, but we refuse to see the plank in our own. And I, I've been reading the Gospels for a long time, and what I've never found is Jesus going to dinner parties and railing against the Roman oppressive system. Like, he doesn't go to one dinner party and then talk smack against dinner parties that are happening across the Roman Empire. He could have, but he doesn't. For some reason, for Jesus, those were outside of his scope, and he begins with the tables that he's already at. And I think we can learn from Jesus here. And so, do the tables in our lives reflect the wisdom of Jesus' kingdom? That's the question. Now, this, this question might, um, we might answer it differently depending if we're the guest or the host, right? So 
There are many tables that we're a part of where we're the guest at the table. We're not the, we're not the ones setting the agenda, but we're included in it, right? And so if, if the tables that we are a guest at, that we're invited to, are not operating in kingdom wisdom, then here's the question. Are we real, willing to risk the shame and condemnation of insiders like Simon so that the fullness of God might be experienced? Are we willing to risk our relationship to the host for the sake of the uninvited? This one thing I've realized about myself uh, over the course of time is that I'm far, far too concerned with being liked and thought well of by the insiders. I want it at all expenses to protect my insider card from being revoked. And I think the, one of the things that Jesus is challenging me with this passage is, am I willing to risk scandal and shame for the sake of love? Am I willing to attempt to, to make the, the scandalized one the, the guest of honor and, and risk being kicked out of the party altogether? Now, um, sometimes we're not just the guest at someone else's table, but we're the host. And if we're the host, if we have spaces in our lives where we get to be the influencers and set the culture of who's in and who's out, then I think the only question is, what do we have to lose by following Jesus, by opening our table? See, I, we get a glimpse in these last verses of what we have to gain, and this is why I included them. Luke 8, verses 1 to 3, we get a glimpse of, of this alternative system, this kingdom of God that Jesus is building. In verse 1, Luke says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And he goes and he gives them each names. And then he says, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. So that word support means that they're um, the financial ministry of Jesus. They're the ones that are paying for meals, but they're not just the financial backers. These women are traveling alongside the men as equals. They're learning together and walking together and eating together. So do you see these women? Do you see these women? That in spite of their checkered past and the stigmatization that's been placed on them by their society, that with Jesus, they aren't just invited into the room where it happens. They are the ones that get to set the table so that others can experience the good news of God's kingdom. I love the way that Rachel Held Evans um, describes the kingdom of God. She says, what's the kingdom of God like? It's a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes. And there's always room for more. Friends, what tables 
is Jesus inviting you to set? What ways might be open for you? Maybe even tables in ways that you thought were previously closed off to you because they're only for insiders and elites and people with status and power and goodness. Today, friends, we proclaim the good news that Jesus' power turns the tables of power to show us what tables are really for. They're not for hospitality games and power posturing. Jesus' table makes a seat for everyone. And so, lay down your assumptions and come. Come to his table just as you are. Receive God's peace and open that table up to whomever God sends your way. Father, we thank you that you demonstrate a different kind of table setting. We thank you that you take um, those that were scandalized by their society and you make them the guests of honor. Lord, if we've been excluded from tables, maybe even tables with the name of Jesus attached to them, would you remind us just how open they are and how open you are to bringing us in and bringing us home? And God, would you send us out again? Send us out into the tables that we get to experience. Help us to risk our reputation for the sake of love and to discern what tables we might set so that others could experience the goodness of your kingdom. May it come in abundance on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.